0: You're on the home stretch, aren't you? <laughs> Almost there. I was thinking of a survivor's t shirt. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> what I want to talk to you about tonight, not too long, is a little bit um, about what I call the ethics of Shunyatan. What I was talking about the other day, um, laying out the kind of ideas and the particular type of vision that's held um, certainly within Mahayana Buddhism, but I think is there in early Buddhism, about what Shunyatara is and getting it very clear about what it is and what it isn't. Um, Remember, it was that, in a sense, which was uh, emptying out of something that we believe to be there, putting us into relationships of dependence, opening up things from closure into this kind of radical openness. One way I like to hear or, or explain Shunyotan is the clearing of space. It leaves a spaciousness. Um, a spaciousness in one's life where there used to be a solid centre um, called you know grasping after self, self-grasping. Then there is this more open aspect, this more open dimension in your life where you can begin to interrelate. And really that is at the heart of what I call the ethics of Shunyata, Being aware of course, and I did emphasise this a little bit too the other day, that of course that uh, we're not independent isolated entities, we're absolutely radically dependent. We are none of us um, capable in the sense of looking after ourselves. <laughs> That's quite a chastening thought, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We're none of us capable of looking after ourselves properly, in a sense, because we have to radically depend on others for our existence, you know, non-human others as well as others, plus the things like you know, the sun, the rain, the wind, and everything else. You know, On those days when you're grumpy and you go out in the rain and the, and the wind, <laughs> just bear in mind this is sustaining you. <laughs> <laughs> this is keeping you in being. It brings you into a completely different relationship with it. So the ethics of Shunyatara is basically an ethics of interdependence, of radical interdependence. And I can't stress that more often than, than you know, just to keep, say, keep it in mind, keep it in mind that we're not these isolated, fragmented, discrete entities, but we're in interrelation. And it's absolutely vitally important that we realise that we're (laughs) in this interrelation because otherwise the self-grasping attitude rises to the forefront each time and we behave abominably. (laughs) Let's let's put no too fine a point on it. I mean, often we behave abominably in this world because we grasp after self as being more important. I suppose if there's been any theme that's run through all my talks, it's really about breaking up the idea of something solid Within are then breaking up the idea of solid, discrete things that we encounter and discrete others, you know, who are not somehow related to us, um, and ourselves as this object which we identify with the I and the self and the me and the mine. And suppose all everything that's run through, all the talks I've given you, has been this idea of breaking it up, absolutely pulverizing the idea of solidity. And that's getting back to I know it's a much overused word, but it's an extremely important word back to the idea of process, that we're actually in processes. We're deeply embedded in systems, which are also processes. Um, And we forget it, to our cost, because that is when we start to behave unethically. You know, when we think that we can do things, either individually or collectively, which denude resources and um, basically, um, in a way, completely add to the catastrophe which is happening in the present world. So we can either learn to live in a way which is opening, opening to others. Uh, and live in a way which is, um, to use the phrase in Mahayana Buddhism, is a perfection. And so actually what I've been talking about here is a perfection. And it is the perfection, what is known as the Prajnaparamita. It's the perfection of insight, the perfection of understanding. And if you like, this is the highest of the perfections, the perfection of understanding, uh, of the way things actually are. However, that way things actually are is also underpinned, again, in a very substantial fashion by other perfections. You know, there are six perfections, generally spoken of. I don't tend to go for the ten version. Uh, six perfections is enough for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, six perfections, starting off with the radical perfection of giving, you know, generosity. I mean, this is the first of the perfections. Remember the other day I said to you that sometimes uh, we've got it about face, topsy-turvy, the whole of the path. We do lots of meditation, um, but actually the Buddhist path in traditional culture starts with a culture of giving. It actually starts with the culture of generosity, uh, of, of giving generously towards others. And and bear in mind, and I really do emphasize this, bear in mind that is not just giving material things. As much as that is important, it's giving of yourself. You know, giving of yourself in some degree of empathy. Uh, Giving your empathy to others, giving your warmth to others, giving your kindness to others, giving your compassion to others. You know, all the things we've been emphasizing over these three weeks so far, this is what the perfection of giving is about actually learning to give in whatever way is possible and actually whatever way is necessary the stuff that was um, really captured in this poem I hope you all took a copy or already read it uh, Shantideva's poem you've got a You know, that's a kind of giving that you're talking about, may I be, all these things, I'm going to read it again because uh, hopefully you've got a copy and can look through it but it's this sense of dramatically giving whatever is necessary. Now, that is contextual. That is contextual. So the eye of insight, the eye of wisdom, is absolutely fundamentally important for us to be able to get sensibly. Not to have, in this world, something which is um, often spoken of, particularly in Tibetan tradition, as things like idiot compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Idiot compassion is giving, uh, in a sense, when there's nothing to give. You know, when we're just kind of emptying ourselves out in this very, very destructive way. You know, it's kind of carer's burnout stuff, where often there isn't a real sense of there is anything left to give. So the charity also, as we all know from the practices we've been doing, starts at home. It has to start at home with, with nurturing things like metta, like compassion nurturing yourself, so that when you have to give, there is something to give, something genuine. Because if there isn't anything genuine, it's hollow. You know, we can do all the right things, uh, but without the right intentions. Yeah? And remember, of course, that in Buddhist thought, it's always the te- intention which is important. Yeah? The intention behind the act. So it's important that we give intentionally, and we give with an understanding about the situation that we find ourselves in. We're always in situations, that I actually would go as far as to say, actually, that there is no situation that, we are hard, that we're ever in that isn't ethical. Virtually every situation where we're involved with other human beings, um, other beings, Uh, where we can call it a sort of a non-ethical situation. Everything is ethical. Everything demands something from you. I don't know if you've noticed, it's it's a big demand. Buddhist ethics and Buddhist practice is um, not for the faint-hearted in many ways. (laughs) It really isn't, because it is demanding of you something which we don't do, which is actually a kind of perfection of seeing, a perfection of hearing in this world what is necessary the cry that is often there in the voice or in the visage in the face of another even when they're not expressing it even when they're not expressing it when it's expressed through tone perhaps you know these are things i've probably said to you before but i really want to emphasize them again because in this ethics of shun when we are captured in this radical dependence which we can never isolate ourselves from even if we attempt to even if we attempt to isolate ourselves, we're still somehow in on everything, then really there are demands being made on you, and those are ethical demands. And so actually, the second of the perfections is the perfection of Shila, the perfection of morality, you know, the perfection of, in a sense, our ethical being in the world. Um, and as you can see, with these perfections, and this is the traditional way of putting it, it starts with the perfection of giving, then moves into the perfection of morality. And remember what I said the other day, often Asian teachers say, you start with meditation, do a bit of morality, and forget about the giving. <laughs> 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 you know, so we've got the whole thing upside down. Um, and actually you work towards the meditation. In fact, in many ways, as Bhavanar. Not as meditation, but as cultivation. The cultivation of giving in itself is you know, a very positive act. The cultivation of morality or ethics is a very positive act. It is cultivation, after all. You know, so when I give of myself in an ethical way, or I learn to be in an ethical way in this world, then I am cultivating, I am transforming the mind. And if there's been anything that the Buddhist tradition has been about for this two and a half thousand years that's been in existence, it's been about the transformation and cultivation of mind. Uh, it's not a kind of adjunct to it. It is the central facet of what Buddhist practice is about. It's not about all the other stuff that religions go on about. It's about the simple transformation of the mind. That is why it is a profound psychology. And everything within... certainly Buddhist practice, I didn't always say within Buddhist philosophy and thought because sometimes that comes off an intellectual tangent but certainly within Buddhist practice and the sort of things I've been talking to you about over this last couple of weeks, nearly three weeks now um, have all been geared to the ways that we see in the world they're all practical dimensions, they're all geared to praxis in the world And so that is what is important about them. They are not just funny little ideas. (laughs) They are really important to the way that we live our lives. None more so than, in a sense, this interdependence which is opened up by the radical understanding of Shunyata, the radical understanding of emptiness. Emptiness is the foundation for understanding that. Emptiness is what also decreases our self-grasping and our grasping after all kinds of phenomena. And remember, grasping here is, in a sense, also that grasping after avoidance of certain things in life. And if there's one thing that's surely going to happen, you're not going to avoid. <laughs> it's going to come your way. You know, it really does. It comes your way, and uh, no matter how much you try to avoid it. I always remember years, and remember a number of years ago, they did this um, spoof poster, movie poster, in tricycle, which uh, had a kind of uh, tricycle. Is a Buddhist magazine that comes out of America. And it had the kind of thing you see on the the cinemas. You know, coming to you soon. Old age, sickness, death. (laughs) And it says, oh, because you can avoid all sorts of things, but you're not going to avoid these. (laughs) These are going to happen. So either we transform our minds in relationship to these existential facts, these inescapable, ineluctable facts of life, Or we go under, in a sense, towards them. So we can spend our life avoiding, but there's no point because actually we can have this happy mind or happy mindedness, as is often referred to in the text, by simply being with. Now, also that being with is to be with whatever ethical situations we find ourselves in and to be ethically sensitised. To those situations, so we can, you know, to use words I've been using over the course of these last few weeks, we can act rather than react. Yeah? So often we are not acting, we think we are volitionally in control. We're not, we're completely out of control. Yeah? The only control is coming from a kind of fossilized, um, sedimented. Habit pattern which keeps reasserting itself. <laughs> I'm a making it happy, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm the dispenser of joy.
1: <laughs>
0: it's that time of night. <laughs> But we can we can open up. Um, I mean, despite the kind of really kind of stuff I'm giving you here, we can open up. We can open up to radical, radically different ways of being, which are radical ways of acting as opposed to reacting. In a sense, this is um, how would I put it? Almost our, our this is our mission, in a way, on this earth, uh, if we have one which is to learn to act and not simply react. You know, to be rather than constantly to do or to identify with the labels that we have. <clears throat> because we all give ourselves labels or we have them placed on us by, you know, by the kind of world that we inhabit. You know, and we take them too seriously quite often. Those labels that are placed on us, we take the ones far too seriously. And any label is going to be stripped away from you as well. You know, so what's the point in hanging on to those? They're just kind of conventions here in the world. So coming back to the context of ethics, the the ethical context is one that we're always in, we can never avoid. So we must learn to ethically sensitise ourselves. And that doesn't mean being operative through a whole list of prescriptions Almost going back to where we started, remember I gave you a brief description, I think I gave you a brief description, it seems a long time ago now, (laughs) but I gave you a description of the precepts. The precepts are not um, thou shalt and thou shalt not for us. The precepts are ways of sensitising our being in this world so that we can live harmoniously with others. And it's quite different. I mean, all of them start off with that formulaic structure, I undertake a rule of training, nothing else. It doesn't say, it doesn't actually say, although you'll still find it in a lot of popular books on Buddhism, where it lists, you know, the first precept is don't kill, the second precept is don't lie, and so on and so forth, all the way through them. And whilst those might be implied, they're not actually what they mean. Yeah, they're part of the implication, the, the very simple stuff of don't kill, don't do this and don't do that. Actually, what it is, is you know, to to move into context where we examine what it means to harm. If you undertake the rule of training to refrain from harming living beings, you know, that's what it means. Um, it'd be very simple. Because we come from a Christian judaic context, which actually has prescriptive ethics, we tend to lay that on Buddhist ethics and Buddhist ethics is not prescriptive. It's not prescriptive in saying here is a rule and stick to the rule. What it is saying is here is something which can guide you through life, see how you can use it to discern harm that you do in life. You know, because we all do you know, far, you know, far more harm through our actions in the world other than just killing and most of us in this room wouldn't in, probably intentionally do that so it becomes a way of sensitising ourselves so the, the, the precepts are absolutely fundamental I mean I say we're almost going back to where we started here the precepts are absolutely fundamental because they are ways that actually remove some of the calluses some of the hard skin of our being in this world by making us much much more sensitive to the what is going on around us and the what is required of us in this world. Now obviously things like the alcohol you know, and, and the intoxicants prescription, you know, or rule of training, which is a much better way of hearing it, is there so that you don't commit all of the above. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah. Because the tendency of course is, with a clouded mind, with a, with a mind that's all fuzzy through whatever the intoxicants can be, we commit all kinds of stuff: like wrong speech, um, you know, sexual misconduct. You know, all this stuff comes into being. I, mean, I joked about it. I think at the time said, so "This is the stuff of office parties." <laughs> you know, it really is. So wherever we are, we are in an ethical situation, and our precepts become guides to help us through that. I mean, It's far more complex than this. Um, I always remember once when talking at Sharpen, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, ever since I've been coming here and doing meditation and listening to you, life's become more difficult. And I said, it's working then, <laughs> <laughs> because that is what it's about. In a sense, it's opening up difficulty, because life isn't just you know, black and white. It's not just yes and no. It actually requires far more of you than these rather crude rules that we often live by. Now, in the absence, obviously, of ethical sensitization, then the rules have a place, and one can read them as that. But that is not what their implication is. That is not what they're there for. So we have giving and we have morality as being totally fundamental to the path those are your bedrock that's where you operate from They're, and if I'm kind of mixing metaphors furiously here they're kind of your launch pad for awakening <laughs> uh, because that's where you take off from 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 the giving and from the morality or ethics uh, unless we pay attention to that um, then as most of the commentators will say the meditation will profit you not much. You might get some nice states out of it, um, but it doesn't feed in to what we need that awareness for that we're developing in meditation, which is actually moving through life in a less destructive way, you know, both for ourselves and for others. And again, this is all because it's about interdependence again. We're not separate from others. There is, you, know, you cannot sit there and say, oh, I'm not doing any harm because often we are, (laughs) you know, even our very being um, in terms of our thought patterns can be, in a sense, sending out harmful energy to others. So it's important that we we deal with that. Then, of course, you have as well the next one, which is sorely required in this world. Uh, It's the perfection of patience. And one often that's needed to be developed towards your practice. We push and strive too hard, quite often. Push, 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 because that's where we get things done in the worst. And don't have the patience to to dwell with things for a long time. The learning process is a long one, comparatively because you're not just learning a skill, you're not just learning a whole load of information, you're learning a whole revised way of being in this world. And of course, what happens with lack of patience is all the usual stuff. Okay? The direct opposite of patience is irritational anger. You know? That's what arises. You know, as I was saying to a group over the weekend, you know, see the opportunity when you're stuck in a traffic jam as an opportunity rather than something to rail about and shout about you know wherever things don't go quite your way because they don't a lot of the time you know as i often joke you know the world does not give you what you want uh, in the way that you most desire it uh, for the most part you know so if that is the case what do we do we have to look at opportunity within these situations. So being stuck, say, for example, it's just a, a, a typical example, one that's very common. Being stuck in a traffic jam, what do you do? Do you rail and shout and get irritated and you know, send your blood pressure up? Or do you um, basically see this as an opportunity for practice? <laughs> you know? And that's, that's you know, how we use each situation that we find ourselves in. And so patience is always something that's required of us. It's required in the meditative process itself to have patience. Because without that, we're often projecting ideals about what we want to happen. And when we project an ideal, we don't see what is actually happening. Do we? Because we're looking so desperately for the ideal that we want. I want this experience to happen to me, or I want to be calm, or I want to be insightful, and all the stuff that, in a way, the kind of labels that we have on Buddhist meditational practices hand out to you. you know, so, yeah, You're going to do calm meditation, so therefore you're going to get calm. No, you're not. <laughs> Certainly not in the early stages, perhaps after doing it for quite a while. Uh, and that will require patience of you. you know, it will require something of you. Um, to come into that situation even the learning situation and remember the buddha did not say leave your brain at the door <laughs> you know, he said come complete with your brain and use it <laughs> use it in the reasoning process he did not condemn uh reasoning he didn't say it would take you to the goal he didn't say it would lead you to nirvana um, but he didn't um, completely abandon reasoning and thought altogether because he thought it was fundamentally important in examination of the teachings. Now, you have to examine the teachings. You have to go through this process sometimes of reasoning it through for yourself and seeing whether it's applicable in my life, or in your life, and everybody else's life, and see how it fits with the other teachings that you've often heard as well. So it wasn't a question of simply leaving that. And in traditional Buddhist contexts, for example, the learning process can be extremely long. Extremely long. Um, I mean, I always go say from out of my own experience, although I never went through the whole thing, um, you know, in a Tibetan monastic university, if you take your first degree, it takes you from anywhere from 15 to 25 years <laughs> to take your first degree. Then you go to postgraduate college and do another 10 years. <laughs> Uh, That's within some of the
1: traditions.
0: (laughs) Mm. Uh, It's a friend of mine who came to the West and actually studied at Cambridge, did philosophy at Cambridge, and I couldn't believe that you could do a whole course in three years. (laughs) You know, and then spend another three years and you've got to academic top of the tree because you've got your PhD as well. (laughs) You know, I mean, he just thought this was rather silly, <laughs> and actually have a phrase for it. And this is very important because this is all about patience as well. I don't say we have to go through this this whole lengthy process. In fact, one of the things that often, certainly, people like the Dalai Lama and uh, Tibetan teachers applaud Westerns is their ability to pick up things quite quickly. But they also <laughs> the other the downside of that is they pick them up very quickly and understand them very quickly, and also forget them very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because we're used to kind of cramming in our learning and it not really becoming what I call embodied knowledge because of impatience. And, you know, this kind of of knowledge that we're talking about is the knowledge that you have to dwell with for a long period of time rather than just cram, 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 cram and then forget it at the end of it because that is often what happens. And so the learning process is often... Deem this is actually the way that's described. and This is a translation of the Tibetan. Turning reasoning into reality. Yeah. You know, so you go through this long process, and that requires patience um, from the individuals engaged in it. Moment, anger, and irritation creep in, and then we lose everything. We lose even sometimes what we've learned. It's obscured. It's it's obfuscated by. Um, the, the, yeah, the mind grasping in such a way or projecting ideals and, and wanting, wanting, wanting it becomes just another form of materialism um, Chögyam Trungpa a great teacher in his early days particularly had this wonderful thing he called it spiritual materialism yeah, a lot of us in the West are just engaged in, in basically collecting spiritual artefacts you know, bits of knowledge did you collect lots and lots of bits of knowledge and you put them all in a room, or lots of beautiful artifacts and you put them all in a room? What do you have? A junk shop. <laughs> 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 you know, because that is what actually happens um, when there isn't actually seen clearly. If nothing is seen clearly within it, you know, so the room is crowded. Our minds get crowded with a lot, lot more information. So, <clears throat> there is no kind of substitute, and I mean mean this about the basic teachings. there's no substitute in terms of patience for going through them again and again and again and again. Uh, I remember after part of my three year training um, when I was doing one text for three years, I did one text for three years, I got to the end of it and said. To my teacher, okay, what do we do now?" And He said, "We go right back to the beginning <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, just go straight back to the beginning. So, you know if you get to the end of it and you haven't understood what it's all about, you know, by asking that question, <laughs> then you go back to the beginning, yeah? because it's about, isn't about simple acquisition. I and mean, there is a tendency again in the West to you know mm. been there, seen it and done it. <laughs> You know, four noble Truths. Oh yeah, I know those. <laughs> <laughs> Dependent origination oh, I think I'll could rattle those off, you know, despite you know, poor old and under. <laughs> you know, so in other words, we, we don't actually live with this stuff for a long period of time, and what I'm really trying to say to you in, in, in kind of this jokey fashion what I'm really trying to say to you is you have to dwell with it a long time and you have to go through it again and again and again and almost see it as a multifaceted object. You know, four noble truths um, are not simple. Prima facie, they seem very simple. Face value, they seem extremely simple. You know, you've got dukkha, you've got um, samudhya, you know, um, the origin of dukkha. You've got Nirodha, and then you've got Maga. You know, Nirodha is the cessation, and the Marga is the path to the cessation. And it all seems very simple. Um, yet, as one teacher once said to me, he said, examine the Second Noble Truth, and you'll find the whole Buddhism within it. You know, all of the profound teachings, including the teachings of Shunyata, if you really begin to move into the understanding of the origin of suffering, or the origin of Dukkha, which is actually a far better way of putting it. So you have to dwell with it for a long time. So patience is required. You know that I say, patience is a virtue? <laughs> it certainly is in Buddhism. It's a big one. It's a huge one that requires, that's required for the whole practice, really. And the patience often with yourself when you fail. Because we will. You know, we will fail, without, even with some <coughs> the best intentions. As I often say, you, know, you go out with the best intentions in the morning... Towards the world, feeling sort of this great bonhomie for the world, and suddenly screw up along the way. Between leaving the door in the morning and finally arriving to where you're going. It's suddenly lost. And really what I'm saying again through the medium of slightly of humour here is in that process, when we do fail, when we do get there, that we are patient with ourselves, don't get angry, don't brutalize ourselves. Um, be honest with ourselves yeah, in, in Buddhist cultures they are shame cultures you can feel ashamed but in, the, in feeling ashamed you can then move on you don't carry it with you you don't have guilt difficult one to say isn't it because guilt is are so present in our cultures yeah. we are taught and made to feel guilty about all sorts of things Um, But, you know, it's another way of just really giving ourselves a hard time. That's all. And not actually often moving on out of that. So this ability to have patience is also to be patient with yourself and not get angry with yourself and your own failings. To have patience for your failings, too. So, you know, this is a very small story about the whole uh, notion of patience in Buddhist practice. Then there is something that's required, which is called the perfection of effort. You have to have balanced effort. You have to be able to apply the mind correctly in proper balance. And all the practices require you to put the correct amount of effort in. Not too much and not too little. Hopefully over these last few weeks or so, you find that probably now you're beginning to get an idea much more of the effort that is required rather than you know i often see particularly beginning meditators you know to say to them do calming meditation by concentrating an object <laughs> so, you can almost see this mentally you know going on giving themselves a headache because they're trying too hard you know fixating on something um or there's the other kind of thing of the dynamic duo coming into play sloth and torpor you know sleepiness and drowsiness coming in where you don't put much effort in at all and they creep up on you very quickly. So the effort required is the right effort, it's that gentle effort, that effort to let the mind rest on whatever it is, um, without straining too much and without you know, letting oneself move into sleepiness and drowsiness. And that's in the meditation process, and actually that also is implied in ordinary life. Strain too hard, you know, force yourself in, you know, to push, to push, to push, and you'll end up with stress the opposite way is just called laziness <laughs> you know, not putting enough effort in not um, putting enough effort into life into the examination for example of our moral constraints and ethical inquiry in life not concentrating on putting the right degree of effort into the form that generosity can take and you know, it's, it's there in every facet of our lives it's there everything. Everything we do, from our daily tasks um, to the learning of Buddhism, to the practice of meditation, it requires the right degree of effort. And it has to be balanced effort. Put too much in, you just wear yourself out. Put too, too little in, and you're just nodding off. You're just you know drowsing, effectively. And then there is perfection of concentration, perfection of meditation, actually. I mean, this is uh, what's used. Within, So we have to concentrate. Traditionally, of course, all of the meditation practices are what's called pair-yoked. They're yoked together, where concentration practices go with insight practices. Now, actually, I think in doing the practices you've been doing, you're doing both. You, know, you actually have within this package this strategy of doing things like metta and karuna, You have a concentration practice, but you also gain insight from doing it. So you're not doing two separate practices. I think they come within the same package, in a sense, here, where you gain insight by concentrating on these virtues and the development of these virtues within the world. And so this perfection of meditation, this perfection of concentration, is extremely important. But in the end, it's overrided, the whole lot, by the perfection of insight perfection of understanding, of understanding the way things are. And when we understand the way things are, we come right back to where we started, which is interdependence. You know, so these are paths to take you to this, this dynamic understanding of things as being a complex sense of interrelatedness in this world, and how we are not separate. We are not separate from others. We have an effect. And everything else comes into play in that. So our giving is required, our patience is required, our morality is required, our energy is required, our concentration and uh, coming from meditative practice is required, and insight is required as well. And that is why it's the harmony of the perfections which leads to, in a Buddhist sense, the perfected Bodhisattva's life. Mm -hmm. Bringing all these qualities together. Now, they're often seen and perceived as the total perfection of them as being stages. I prefer to see them as much more at this stage in our development as being symbiotic. Each one helps to develop the others, but they come together as a job lot. (laughs) They come together as six that you have to be looking at all the time in terms of your life. So if we're talking about the development of the ethics of Shunyata, in other words, the ethics which comes out and arises out of that, perhaps even just at this stage, intellectual understanding, because that's probably all it is at this moment in time. Some of you might have had experiences, but most of it still remains at an intellectual level. And you require the other elements, you require the other five elements there to support that and develop that intellectual understanding into an actualization, an experience of this interrelatedness, what things are empty of. Actually, in their emptiness, they're full. That is why form is emptiness and emptiness is form. They are not separate things emptiness is not a nihilistic category let's let's make that absolutely clear um the term shunyata was actually used in indian mathematics it was uh, to describe absolute zero described everything and nothing at the same time and that's how the term shunyata implied both zero and plenum at the same time in indian mathematics and that term was borrowed um, and utilised in the history of Buddhism, and particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, the Shunyata, to describe things. So when I say things are empty, it leaves everything in place. It leaves the whole world of interdependencies there, and to make us responsive to that. And so another way of looking at this ethics is an ethics of responsiveness. In the Zogchen tradition, which is one tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, coming from the older school of Tibetan Buddhism, There is, they translate um, Karuna and something called Tugje, and Tugje means responsiveness. It's our ability to respond in whatever situation we find ourselves correctly. So the ethics is in the responsiveness. And when I talked about that sensitization that's required in order to be ethical in this world, then we are, in a sense, creating this ethically responsiveness within ourselves so that we learn how to be in whatever situation we find ourselves in and how to be as fully as we can in whatever situation we find ourselves to be. And that, in a nutshell, is the ethics of Shunyata. (laughs) I don't know if there's any questions. That was a quick trawl through. (laughs) There's a lot more to say about it, but uh, I'd require to give you further information. I think you've had too much, probably, by now. The six perfections, again? Six perfections. Perfection of giving, perfection of morality, perfection of patience, perfection of effort, perfection of meditative concentration, and perfection of insight. Those are the six perfections. Sometimes it's rounded up to ten, but it's only for aesthetics because so, it brings it in line with the ten but out for stages <laughs> the lists fun? the lists the lists, yes they have a role though, they have a role they are mnemonic devices always remember that, the lists because yeah, if you can remember your six perfections you know what you're engaged in you know what you're engaged in trying to develop it's just a mnemonic device that's on you know, the Eightfold Path, Noble Truth, You know, this is this is how this developed because it was an oral tradition, and you had to memorize things. You didn't have them all written down in your notebooks or on your palm leaf. <laughs> you had to memorize them, and there is a lot about that. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know if you ever had to do it at school, but you know, when you learnt a poem or something, it was called learning it by heart. Did you come across that phrase? I think it's a wonderful expression. To learn it by heart. Okay, the, the learning of it was often painful, but the actual fact that, you know, I don't know about yourselves, but I can still remember whole tracks of bits of poetry that I learned when I was very, very young and, and served me very well because I can now use them. They actually, in a sense, become embodied. You know, you learned, and learned them by heart. <clears throat> in a sense, that was what was actually going on in the Buddhist tradition when they learned these lists. You know, because if you had the list, then you could help somebody else, you could discourse on them, Yeah. so actually it's a device, I would say, you know, you don't have to do too many of them, but as a list, certainly as lay practitioners, uh, are, you know, some of these lists are worth burning, um, because they're always good pointers, you know, four noble truths, eightfold paths, twelve links of dependent origination, five hindrances, Yeah, you know, all of these are useful. <laughs> five precepts, yeah, could go on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Just um, with the precepts, um, the intoxicants.
2: Mm-hmm. I I um,
1: always found it a bit sort of limited, um, and with with um, taken our hands the interpretation of the precepts, he talks about it in terms of its consumption. Everything mm. that you take sort of, take into your being, and mm. whether it's nourishing or whether it's harmful, and just find that just much more. Um, well, it
0: just feels a bit limited just to be talking about. Well, actually, the the actual precept, <coughs> the actual precept runs to it's actually taking substances which disturb the balance of the mind. Yeah, that's the actual. It doesn't say don't drink alcohol, it just says avoid taking substances or to refrain from taking substances which disturb the balance of the mind. Now, obviously, that is open to a very wide interpretation, and that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to help you inquire into, for example, the pollutants that we put into our own skulls, um, which literally are disturbing the balance of our mind. And you know, one of the major pollutants is desire. <laughs> you know, that's what we put into the mind. That's certainly, I mean, when you've got desire going on, that's certainly disturbed the balance of the mind, <laughs> you know when you're grasping after something, but obviously it does mean directly as well things like alcohol and drugs and stuff like that and it's to even if people do do those things, it's helped them to understand the relationship they have with them too you know it's it's not saying don't, I shall not you know it's not doing that it's actually trying to put you into a relationship with the sort of things that can. Know, create cloudiness and disturb the balance of the mind. And, and the same is true for all. I mean, the one, the third precept is the one that always gets me, because it's usually totally mistranslated. Um, it's usually just about sexual misconduct, and actually it's about sexual and sensual misconduct. Mm. Yeah. That's actually the proper phrasing of it. Um, but because sexuality is such a big hang-up, or has been for a long time in the West, it gets a bit of translation. When we miss out on the sensuality part, and sensuality, you know, is, is another way of abusing ourselves too. You know, when we overindulge in it, yeah. so it's again, it's getting that inquiry going. That's what the precepts are about. I, mean, I really don't like hearing them as prescriptions. So, the third would include gluttony. Yeah, yeah, overeating, definitely. Overeating. Yeah, mm-hmm. most definitely. You know, overcome, you know, almost some of them are interrelated. We I mean, can see that could go with overconsumption, too. Yeah. Yeah, if you eat too much, that certainly deserves the balance of the mind because you go to sleep.
2: <laughs> something which comes up for me is that um, somebody has to kill the rats and mice that want to eat organic rice. So, doesn't just being alive include us in the killing process?
0: Can do. It's trying to minimize it, isn't it? As much as one can in this life. I mean, to be, to be alive is to be a consumer
1: mm-hmm.
0: of whatever it is that's there. And, well, certainly, I mean, I know cases in Tibet where whole monasteries moved out and left them to the rats, rather than kill the rats. You know, so <laughs> actually, a really funny story. When I, when, I, when I was when I was in India, we had a rat in our kitchen in um, South India. It one of these huge rats, and they caught it. They caught it in a humane trap, and uh, then they went out and got the monastery car out the monastery had one car and all the monks piled into the car with the rat in (laughs) this thing and then they took it about 10 miles up the road to the nearest village and let it go (laughs) (laughs) and i said to them why on earth did you do that they looked very concerned They said well it had to get something to eat (laughs) <laughs> but you know more seriously yes I me mean, being alive does mean consumed but that's the reason why the first precept <clears throat> is actually looking at the ways that we can harm and minimize the harm that we do in this life as much as possible as much as possible yeah and and so it becomes and then another tool for inquiry
1: which would also include overconsumption
0: yeah yeah i mean the precepts in in their kind of Yeah, just five precepts actually imply an awful lot about the way we live, if they're heard in a very big sense. I mean, they're not as detailed as the monastic precepts that you take in in the Vinaya, which you know can be two hundred twenty-seven or two hundred thirty-six rules. You know, so we get a fairly minimum here, but they are meant to help us inquire, just like the the monks. You know, rules that they live by, the Patamukha or the Vinaya, help them to inquire into the lives that they lead and the way that they interrelate as a community. Yes. So it's, they're quite, I mean, they really are important. They really are important. Yes. That, that is the content of your sense of, you know, the perfection of morality for us. But always bear in mind, they are not prescriptive. They are not prescriptive. You had a question.
1: Yeah. yeah, I was just wondering what you thought about emptiness as a a translation of shunyata. Whether you because when you speak about it mm. uh, and when others speak about it, it doesn't seem like a very good translation. It doesn't. So I was wondering if you could just talk about you know how you know what would you what would you how would you describe
0: it? The nearest I come to getting an effective translation of it, and uh, particularly in the, some of the more technical texts is no thingness hyphenated because uh-huh. what you're saying is what you're confronted with is not nothing but it's no thing mm.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, in other words what you're opening up to is again that notion of a kind of complex process yeah. as opposed to a solid object, I look at the chair or I look at you and I don't see a solid object, what you see is actually something that doesn't possess thingness mm. in that stable sense of the word and that's about as good as it gets really yeah. Yeah. the problem is, the problem is it's very easy um, to absolutize things like Shunyata instead of things around us what we've got is Shunyata you know, this is now a kind of new god <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as an absolute and there are some books around I mean I know that it sounds quite strange but there are books around which actually purvey that view yeah. that, that Shunyata is what it's all about as an absolute of existence, it isn't. It's the absence of absolutes. That's what it is.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. What about um, limitlessness? Um, well that be good as a description as much as anything else? I mean, the one I was using earlier on, spaciousness. You know, it's a spacious way of being. Instead of you know, instead of the closure of a thing, you've got a spacious set of conditions. Arising, limitless um, would be okay within other ranges of descriptions around, about it. But if you're trying to get one word, it's very difficult. Mm. It's very very difficult. Trouble is with the word emptiness. It sounds so negative. Often, you yeah. know, things. You know, he goes, "The world is empty." You go, "Ugh." <laughs> You know, it makes it sound like there's nothing there, or it's pointless, or... I don't know, I mean, perhaps it's me just fantasising, but it kind of has, for me, those connotations. Um, but it's not. It's actually implying this abundance of everything, as opposed to, it's empty. But you see, it has a, you see, it has a very technical usage in the text, so very technical usage, which is emptiness is emptiness of something. And it's emptiness of what's called svabhava, which actually means intrinsic existence, or self-existence, literally. So all things are empty of self-existence. And then it doesn't say anything else about, remember what I was saying? It doesn't say anything else about the object whatsoever. (laughs) So it's not really a good good translation of shunyata. Some of these words, I think, certainly in Buddhist circles, like dukkha, shunyata, ought to become naturalised. Once you begin to get a grasp of them in terms of understanding the term, you know, just like the word Buddha has become naturalised, Nirvana has become naturalized. We even have a perfume called Sangsara. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of the local disco nights where I come from is called Escape from
0: Samsara. It's <laughs> <Okay. laughs> great for us. <laughs> so well I didn't like <laughs> escape to <from> samsara <laughs> 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 Escape from. But some of, some of these words also become naturalised, certainly as I say amongst groups of practitioners who've been practicing for a long time because um, it's far easier to say dukkha than it is to say suffering. Because as you've heard me say before, it's just it's too you know, it's too vast a spectrum of words really, which are, could be used to describe this word dukkha. You know, from minor, minor, minor irritation to absolute suffering, and it goes across that whole spectrum of everything in between. You know, so it's far easier to just say dukkha and understand that's what it means. <laughs> so it doesn't mean you're all learning Pali and Sanskrit. It doesn't mean. And learning a few terms.
1: The questions. Would you say? Would you say that liberation is is possible without having um, a deep Insightful experience into Shunyutta? And if not, would you say that liberation could come from only having a deep insight of Shin Yuta?
0: Liberation has to come amongst all the traditions, really, no matter how they describe themselves, because it has to come from understanding Dukkha, Anicca, and Anatta. That's where it comes from. I mean, that says in all the texts, from the earliest texts to the latest texts. Yeah. And really, when you start talking about Shunyata, all you're talking about actually is an understanding of Anata. That's yeah. all you're talking about. But it has to also be the others. I mean, in a sense, Anata is implied by Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But don't you think, within the, within that deep experiential insight of, of Shunyata, that the, those other two would be almost...
0: You know, I, I think they all. Automatic. I think they imply each other because I mean, obviously, if you don't understand, as we don't, you know, apart from intellectually, often a lot of the time, if we don't understand the and we don't understand anatta, you know, impermanence and not self, then automatically they will give rise to dukkha. Mm-hmm. That's automatic. Mm. They give rise to it, and it's to see their operations again and again and again and again and again until literally it's the movement from not getting it although we understand it intellectually, to getting it. Yeah. That's the big, it's a big movement though, isn't it? It's a huge movement from understanding something. Yeah. I mean, all those people that understand why you shouldn't do bad things for yourself and probably have all the literature and know it extremely well, it's like that, and they still continue to do the same things they do. I mean, it's a bit like that with us, you know, in terms of Buddhist, in terms of Buddhism. You, in a sense, have all the information now you've had most of the information over probably the last three weeks that you require um, but we just don't get it (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's making that movement that's the big leap between having that comprehension to becoming that embodied knowledge Mm -hmm. to really seeing it as I think I expressed to you it's knowing and seeing as the Buddha puts it You you use
2: the term embodied knowledge. Is is, um, uh, somehow, literally, our muscles have to learn it? Or how would you, uh, as well as the the sexual mind?
0: I think it does come down in terms of, you know, in other words, our bodies are expressive of our mental understandings a lot of the time. our whole nervous system. Yeah. Almost, I wouldn't quite go that far, but I mean, it's, it's in a way that's what I'm implying, where it becomes saturated, because the, the body knows things. I mean, the, the great philosopher Pascal says, you know, you know, the the heart and the body have reasons that reason has no knowledge of. You know, I think it works the opposite way as well. You know, so it's actually creating a body of knowledge here, which knows how to live in accordance with impermanence and not self. Um, body, by the way, in, in Sanskrit and Pali, which is uh, rupa um, or kaya, is, is just as um, ambiguous as the English word body. It can mean many, many, many different things. Yeah, you can talk about a body of knowledge, it can literally embodied knowledge, yeah, a body of facts, a corpus. You know all these sorts of things. So it plays with that term. Um, but I do personally think that it really is. The, the, the insight that saturates the body and really, in a sense, completely revitalizes it. And I'll give you one good example. I'll give you one good example of that. You know, a lot of what we express is done through our bodies, isn't it? So aggression is done through our bodies. Um, certainly the hand is the most one of the most expressive organs that we have, you know. It can, as so readily pointed out, you know, what's the difference? Same organ and the hand of compassion that's held out to somebody. And and so our very gestures become expressive of our being, of our understanding of being in the world. And so if my gestures are ones of insight and compassion, then perhaps they are much more gentle than the ones that are driven by greed, hatred and delusion. You know, the grasping hand that reaches out to grab something, you know, the next chocolate biscuit or whatever it is, you know, is completely different from the hands that um, are, are are seen as giving. For example, you know Tara's gesture, you know, the figure Tara in Tibetan Buddhism, which is, you know, she's the goddess of loving-kindness, or the deity of loving-kindness, and she has a very gentle hand, which is reaching down like this, offering kindness. And these are called mudras, and mudras are gestures of awakening. And they're embodied gestures.
2: Yeah. I was listening to some tapes of John Crook. Yeah. Yep. And in it or in that book, uh, Silent Illumination mm-hmm. there's a description of um, how Master Shengyan interviews his western students. I and mean, he doesn't speak English mm-hmm. and very well. And he says, I don't need to when I interview a student or talk to a student, I can see mm. what their spiritual state is mm. in a really full way. Okay. And, and I, I wonder, my <laughs> goodness! <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to understand the content of uh, mm. their life story they're telling me, and so on and so forth. I could just see in their presence mm. very deeply into who they are. Mm. And and. Uh, um, I wondered. My goodness. I mean, yeah, it's I he knowing, or how is he? How does he see from mm. the
0: body only? But it's the insight that it's the eye to see, isn't it? Right. It's the eye of insight which sees
2: yeah.
0: that and sees very, very deeply. I mean, in a much more conventional sense, I have a friend who's um, an osteopath, and he says that he can he knows what's wrong with the person from the time they walk through the door to the time they sit in the chair. Right seeing what they're doing with their body yeah. you know, and the way they're holding themselves and that. yeah you know, and that that is kind of a skill it's a real mm-hmm. skill to be able to do that mm-hmm. um, and I think obviously with this this kind of insight that you can really really be with others and see what their problems are you know? because it's it's a lot of it is obvious but we just don't have eyes or ears to hear it <laughs> yeah the eyes to see and the ears to hear it. Um, but when you're sensitized in that way, um, you can. You see, I mean, I, and, you know, again, I, when I first became involved in Tibetan Buddhism, I mean, it wasn't my main practice after many years, but when I was first involved in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the first teachers I ever had, it was so funny because I'd never come across it before, um, the Tibetan teacher sort of took my hand like this between his and held it for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> As he was talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, after a while, you've got to disassociate
1: yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Please, can I have my hand back? But it was, it was, it was, it was, I became quite accustomed to it after a while, it was a real Tibetan gesture of being with you, was to hold, I mean, I think actually see that when Tibetan monks are often talking to each other, they're holding each other's hands when they're talking to each other. You know, a way of communicating, it's a real bodily way of communicating, it's a very really physical way of communicating as well, and there's a great deal of kindness that comes through it, too. But it was most disconcerting when I first set it It's not very British, is it? Not very Certainly not very British, no. not British. It was a big learning curve in those days. You
1: don't see a lot of that on the Tube in London. No.
0: Anything else I want to ask?
1: So... Does emptiness imply that there's no objective reality at all?
0: No, it does imply that there is an objective reality. There is there is a something out there. It's, it doesn't imply, for example, everything's an illusion. Okay. It's not that at all. But nothing can be said? Ultimately, <coughs> the things can be said, but what is expressed and said is conventions. Because it's within language, which, you know, as we went through the other day, is a system of conventions and it's fine in its own way, but don't mistake that for the direct perception of what is. You know, so things, I mean, I think I used a phrase, but I'll say it again because it's an important phrase. Things can be perceived, they can't really be conceived. Conception only takes us so far. To really, really see is to perceive it, and that's only through direct perception or something. And what you see is the real. There is something really there, it's not an illusion.
2: though uh, some uh, concepts don't um, tell what really exists, there's what some concepts are about what's real are better than others? in the They're not, is it a relativism where we can't know what's real with our concepts, and therefore any concepts will do, and they're all suspect?
0: Where that some concepts are closer to the truth than... Some others. concepts are closer. Some, closer. some concepts point in the right direction, mm-hmm. but you still have to experience it. And it's possible to evaluate which concepts are better than that. Yeah, and that's the reason, in a sense, why the Buddha said don't abandon your brain, because mm-hmm. it's important to do that, to evaluate, for example, moral, ethical issues and concepts. Mm-hmm. Um... Because if you could, you could get into that relative frame of the mindset you know, it doesn't matter what they do or what they do, because they're all conventional. Yeah, it's yeah. all empty, it doesn't matter. Yeah. and it's not meant to do that at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to bring us into a greater understanding of why we use certain concepts and why certain concepts are prevalent. You know, are much more preferable than others, mm. but they're still not reality. <laughs> mm. So it will take you stages mm. towards the thing but they're not the thing itself and that's the big mistake we often make because we mistake the concept of being the thing Hmm. it's like talking about emptiness you can mistake this concept of emptiness and that is all it is as being the understanding of the no-thingness of being
1: With these different emptinesses or, you know, mm. contemplating shunyata, would you say there's merit in, with the words, trying to dis- convince yourself, or with the words, say, like, this is process happening, i witnessing, or these thoughts are more process happening, or life occurring here?
0: It's good to remind yourself of that occasionally. I wouldn't do it too often. It's good right. to remind yourself of that occasionally, because the real experience of that is in your laboratory and your laboratory is your meditation that's where you really start to see it and then it starts to, to come out in terms of the way that we perceive in ordinary life that's where it's important I mean sometimes I mean, there are good experiments you can do a very really good experiment you can do is to try and drop the use of the word I or me in a day <laughs> just try it for a day it's quite good fun <laughs> yes. and see how you can express things um now, we're always going to fall back even the buddha uses the word i and me and mine in his language but it's good if you really want to see how that concept operates to see you know to take it out of language for a day or half a day <laughs> that's the sort of thing you can do to see how their their concepts and conventions look like Becomes really quite difficult to express things Okay, let's sit quietly for a few minutes just to finish off.